You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So, by now you've all, I'm sure, seen the video. A man named Eric Garner was approached by a plainclothes police officer this summer in Staten Island for the crime of selling Lucy's, which are cigarettes taken out of a pack and sold as individuals without tax. And for the crime of selling Lucy's, Eric Garner was placed under arrest and showed signs of resisting arrest. So the officer administered a hold on Eric Garner that has for 20 years been banned by NYPD policy. Several other police officers show up to help subdue the large man, who, as he's being tackled to the ground, his windpipe crushed by this illegal hold that the police officer is administering on him, says 11 times, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. 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 Before he ultimately dies of asphyxiation. The coroner ruled Eric Garner's death a homicide. That he was not dead of natural causes, that his death was directly related to and a result of the violent tactics of this particular police officer. And so a grand jury was convened to determine whether to indict the police officer for any crime, to hold him, to put him on trial for any crime. And the grand jury after reviewing the evidence, much of which you can see for yourself on YouTube, the grand jury failed to find probable cause to indict the officer. This follows, as we know, the events in Ferguson, Missouri, where though it was not captured on video, A seemingly similar altercation happened between a young African-American man and a police officer. The young African-American man was stopped on the street for some seemingly petty crime. And in the ensuing events, wound up being shot dead multiple times by the police officer. The 
police officer. A grand jury was convened in Ferguson, and the grand jury failed to find sufficient evidence to bring the police officer up on any charges whatsoever, to try him by a jury of his peers in a court of law. Now, for some people, in these instances, both of them, justice was served. The system worked as it was supposed to. Someone was breaking the law. A police officer tried to intervene against somebody who was breaking the law. That person did something that the police officer perceived as threatening and so used whatever means necessary to protect himself against the perception of threat from the perpetrator, which resulted in death. The officer is brought, the case is brought to a grand jury, part of the process. The grand juries failed to find enough evidence to bring the case to trial, and so the officer is let off the hook. And for some people, that is the system working precisely as the system is supposed to. But for other people, what we see, and I include myself in these other people, so there's no questions about where I stand. And I bring this up not to, I know that a sermon sounds like a monologue, I bring it up in the spirit of dialogue, but I want to tell you where I stand. That in these cases, and in many similar cases that happen with alarming regularity in our country, justice is not served. The system isn't working the way the system is supposed to work. It may be working the way the system is currently set up to work, but it's not working the way the system is supposed to work. Part of the issue is that incidents like these, like Eric Garner's in New York and Michael Brown's in Ferguson, are 20 times more likely to happen with young African-American men than they are likely to happen with white people. And so the question one must ask oneself is, does that mean that African-Americans are 20 times more likely to be engaged in crime and to resist arrest so threateningly that they deserve to be shot dead by police or held with an illegal chokehold by police until they asphyxiate and die, does that happen? Are African-American men 20 times more predisposed to be in those situations than white men? And I would think that sensible human beings would say that the answer is no. All human beings have equal, whatever skin color you are, whatever ethnicity you are, we all of us have equal capacity for good and equal capacity for bad. If the system works like the system is supposed to work, then there should not be such an alarming disparity between the numbers of incidents like Eric Garner's and Michael Brown between black people and white people. And more than that, the prison population among black and brown people, men, young men especially, is significantly higher than the prison population of white people. 
young white man in particular. And again, the question must, one must ask is, does that mean that people of color are significantly more likely to commit crime than people, than white people? And I would think that sensible human beings would answer, no, we all have the same capacity for good, and we all have the same capacity for evil. So if it's the case that all of us have the same propensity to commit crime, and yet the, the, you are 20 times more likely as a young black man to die at the hands of a police officer than you are as a young white man. And if you are an African American, you are significantly more likely to end up in jail and to be processed through the criminal justice system than if you are not African American then one must ask oneself, is the system working like the system is supposed to work? The answer, I think, lies in something that is often termed implicit bias. Implicit bias is a little bit different than racism. And I understand that the use of the word racism often shuts down the conversation. Because the officers in the cases that we were just talking about did not seem like overt racists. And we don't know what's in their hearts, we don't know what's in their minds, we don't know exactly what they're thinking, but they didn't use any racial epithets, they don't have a history of racial violence or, or, or racist past. So the term racism, I understand why that shuts down the conversation. So let's not use the term racism, let's use the term implicit bias. And implicit bias means that we are unconsciously predisposed to link people who look differently than us with aberrant behaviors. Which means that in the criminal justice system, there is an implicit bias that has been proven through studies over and over again that white police officers, and sometimes even black police officers, are far more likely to assume criminal activity in someone of color than a white person. That's what implicit bias means. It means the assumption of criminal activity in somebody who looks a certain way. Which is one of the explanations, a very good explanation, of why young black men are killed or arrested by police with, substantial, with substantially higher numbers than white people. Implicit bias. So we learn about implicit bias in this week's Torah portion. Jacob is going to greet his, he's coming back home to the land of Israel. He hears that his brother Esau is coming out to meet him. He sends messengers to go and meet Esau and sees that Esau, who he knows has a vendetta against him, is coming to greet him with 400 men. And Jacob assumes that he's about to engage in war. So he girds up his loins, he gets his armor ready, he divides his family into two groups so that if one is attacked, the other will at least make it away safe and unscathed. And he goes to the encounter with Azov, assuming that it's going to be violent. And to Jacob's surprise, when he greets his brother Azov, Azov falls on Jacob's shoulder and hugs him and kisses him and weeps. Now, Jacob's implicit bias is to assume that Esau means him harm. 
But fortunately for Esau, Jacob is able to shift his thinking enough in that encounter that he doesn't read Esau's lurching toward him to hug him as an act of violence. And we don't read a story about Esau laying dead on the ground through choking after hugging Jacob. But implicit bias is real. We see Jacob's implicit bias in the story, but we also see how Jacob overcomes it. To not presume guilt, to not presume violence, until you are actually threatened with violence and with guilt. But the other issue of implicit bias is what is called broken window policing. How many of you have heard this term, broken window policing? So broken window policing is a deliberate tactic on the part of, uh, of police officers, um, in some ways not a bad tactic, to prosecute or to, to, uh, to prosecute petty crimes so as to deter more violent crimes. Right? So broken window policing, I think, comes from we'll prosecute somebody who throws a rock at somebody's window and breaks the window with as much severity as we would look for a murder. Right? Because if we create a neighborhood where it's illegal and the police will come down hard on you, if you break a window, you know that, you, that they need business in that neighborhood. So the problem with broken window policing is that it rests, in a lot of cases, on implicit bias. That People of color, according to the, the bias, are more likely to be engaged in these petty crimes than people who are not of color. And so broken window policing ends up policing the crimes of the petty crimes of people of color in disproportionate ways than the crimes of people who are not of color. But there's a second kind of implicit bias in our criminal justice system, which is in part why the system doesn't work. And the implicit bias is for prosecutors and juries to side with the telling of police officers about particular encounters, which is why Officer Darren Wilson's testimony in the grand jury was enough to convince the grand jury not to indict Darren Wilson. Because the testimony of a police officer is presumed to hold a veracity and weight that the testimony of other people does not. Now there are good reasons for that implicit bias. We entrust police officers to protect us and to serve us. They put their lives on the line every day to do that, and the vast majority of police officers do that with integrity and honesty and goodness, and they deserve our respect and our admiration for everything that they do. My uncle was a Miami police officer for 20 years. I know that police officers put their lives on the line for us and deserve to be respected and trusted. However, the implicit bias in the judicial system in favor of police officers virtually ensures that police officers are very rarely, if ever, tried, and then even more rarely, if ever, convicted of crimes when they're in the line of duty. And you can see that all over the place in the justice system, 
It happens all the time. But the problem with that is that police then can't be held accountable for crimes that they actually do commit. So for example, the testimony of the officer in Staten Island was enough to exonerate him from the grand jury, even though we can see on video that he's bringing down a perpetrator with a hold that was banned by departmental policy for 20 plus years, and that the coroner said was the direct result of the individual's death, but his testimony that he needed to administer that hold in order to bring the perpetrator down, that was enough to convince the grand jury not to bring the case to trial. That's not how grand juries normally work. Normally how grand juries work, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand it, the way grand juries normally work is that a prosecutor seeks a particular indictment. And so convenes a grand jury almost as a formality in order to secure the indictment and the charges that the prosecutor wants. Which is why most grand juries, the vast majority of grand juries, lead to indictments. It's very rare for a grand jury not to indict somebody. The exception to that rule is in the case of police violence. When there is violence perpetrated by police, they are statistically less likely to be indicted by a grand jury than when there's violence perpetrated by somebody who's not a police officer. That's implicit bias. So here's the problem. The problem is that the police exist because of us. Our social contract the local, state, and federal jurisdictions that we create together in order to provide for the common defense and for the local defense, we are responsible for that. And so that means we are also responsible when police act outside of their authority because we create the rules of their authority. We create the guidelines of their authority. We create the authority behind their authority. We set the standards in place because they are our police. They're part of our government. We are responsible for what they do because they do it in our name. They do it in order to protect and to serve us. And we're responsible for the judicial system. The judges that we establish and set up, the juries that we convene, they are also us. And we are responsible for the biases that exist in our society. We may, not, we may not be active participators in those biases. None of us may be racist. None of us may be biased against people of color. But we all participate in some ways in the biases that are present in the systems of our society. That's how they remain in place. And so it is very much, as I interact with the news of the past week about Eric Garner's death, I'm reminded of what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote 
when he was trying to explain his involvement in the anti-Vietnam War movement in the 1970s. And in 1973, Heschel wrote the following. Morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. It also became clear to me that in regard to the cruelties committed in the name of a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. I did not feel guilty as an individual American for the bloodshed in Vietnam, but I felt deeply responsible. Thou shalt not stand idly by the blood of thy neighbor. This is not a recommendation, but an imperative, a supreme commandment. And so I decided to change my mode of living and to become active in the cause of peace in Vietnam. In a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. We may not have administered the chokehold on Eric Garner, but we are responsible for creating a society in which police administer illegal chokeholds on unarmed victims. And we are responsible for creating a society in which the testimony of police is implicitly believed in grand juries. We are responsible for creating a society in which prosecutors feel more committed to supporting the causes of the police than to the causes of justice and due process. We are responsible for allowing a society in which the popular conception of a young black man is far more likely to be criminal than the popular conception of a young white man. We are responsible, we may not be guilty of any particular act, but we are responsible for creating and countenancing a society that is set up like that. And so here is the rub. In our Parsha this week, we hear the troubling story of the rape of Dina. So Dina is Jacob's daughter, and she is raped by the prince of Shrem. And when the news is brought to Jacob, he is silent. And then when Shrem and his father come to Jacob and Jacob's brothers to say, even though I just raped Dina, what I really want to do is marry her. The brothers had to plot. And they say, here's what we're going to do. We'll allow you to marry her if every male in your city gets circumcised. And so Shem says, sure, we'll have every male in the city get circumcised. And so every male gets circumcised. And on the third day after the circumcision, mass circumcision, when everybody is recovering from the procedure, and I can attest that the third day is a hard day after recovering from the procedure, Shimon and Levi, two of the eldest sons of Jacob, go to the city and slaughter every man in the city. While Jacob stands silently on the sidelines. Now later on, at the end of the story, Jacob takes the children to task for the crime that they committed in the name of justice, but which was actually vengeance and violence, not just being carried out justly. He objects to it later, after it's already done. And then later, 
in the book of Genesis, when he's blessing the children, when he's blessing his children, he takes Shimon Levi to task again and says that they are a pair, their weapons are tools of lawlessness, let, not me, let, let me not be regarded in their counsel. He eventually objects, but the, the silence that he has during the events of the story in our Torah portion are thunderous. Which is why our tradition says, Shtika kehoda'a damya. Silence is tantamount to assent. So if you believe that we have a responsibility for creating a society in which police are held accountable when they break the law, if you believe that we are responsible make it such that police can be held accountable, if you believe that we ought to be living in a society in which there is not implicit bias against black and brown people, and that justice is administered with justice and fairness and equality, if you believe that we are currently living in a society as I do, in which justice is not being administered justly and fairly and equally, and in which long-term, long-held prejudices still emerge and bubble up and cause harm and violence and death and degradation of communities. If you believe that we are still living in a society in which those injustices still are perpetrated, then you have to also acknowledge the ways in which those injustices are perpetrated in your name. And the lesson we learn from Jacob is shtika kavoda'a damya. Silence is tantamount to ascent. And the longer, like Jacob, we are silent, the longer it is that we will continue to see injustices and brutalities like happened in our Parsha this week take place in our society with alarming regularity. So I want to close with a prayer that was written by my friend Rachel Berenblatt, Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt. Nishmat Kolchai, breath of all life, your breath enlivened the first man, you breathe the life, the breath of life in each of us. Today our breath is shortened as we remember Eric Garner gasping, I can't breathe, an elbow pressed around his neck. Breathe into us determination to build a better world where no innocent is killed by those sworn to serve and protect. Ignite us toward justice. Eric Garner was made in your image. His six children bereaved in your image. Every black man, woman, and child, 20 times likelier to be killed by police than their white neighbors in your image. Help us to root out from every heart the hidden prejudice which causes police to open fire in fear which transforms a child in a hoodie into a hoodlum, a person into a threat. Comfort the families of all who grieve. Strengthen us to work for a world redeemed. And we say it together, Amen. Shabbat Shalom.